Hi everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I'm your host, Dina McKay, and I'm very excited for the guest that I have on the podcast today. His name is Fred Mwanga Ganga, and he is the founder of Media Takeout. Now you're probably wondering why I have this gentleman on the podcast. But what many people don't know is that Fred is a entrepreneur and he's a three-time entrepreneur who's very successful in his businesses. So in the episode today, you're gonna hear great advice and tips for how to be successful in business, as well as you're gonna hear about the new tech platform that he's going to launch. This is a long one, so grab your pen and paper and get ready to take some notes because Fred drops a lot of gems on this podcast. So let's get it. Hi, Fred. Hey, how's it going today? Awesome. So let's get started and just tell the listeners, let's give a background. What are you doing currently? So right now I'm the founder and editor of MediaTakeout.com. I'm also the CEO. So um, I started this company about 11 years ago, and right now it's probably taking up 90% of my time right now. And so that's where the, the bulk of my focus is. And so you start with Media Takeout 11 years ago. What made you want to get started with doing media and on an online platform? That's an interesting question. I mean, you got to think back 11 years ago, and there really was no social media. I mean, social media was like MySpace and um, um yeah, aim into messenger. So it was just a different place. There was no Instagram, there was no Facebook. And so, you know, when you wanted to go out there and look for urban entertainment news, you had to kind of find it in in the mainstream world somewhere. So you'd you know, you maybe you'd go to People magazine and maybe they'd have a couple of articles about African American celebrities and African American celebrity news. Maybe you'd find it online and, you know, wherever you can find it. But there was no kind of um online only presence. Um, specifically dedicated to African-American entertainment news, um, at least not on a large scale. And I saw that that was kind of a, that was a real hole in the market. How could this be? You know, I knew the value and how kind of sticky entertainment news was and how important it was to the world at large. So it just didn't seem to make sense to me that there really was no main player in this field. And so when I was looking at, I was coming out of another business, I was kind of trying to figure out what businesses I was going to, go into, I saw this giant opportunity and took it. Awesome. And like you're saying, there weren't a lot of media platforms at that time, but throughout your 11 years, there's been a lot of media that's kind of picked up, you know, you had Nicole Bitchy, you had a couple other platforms that were out there. How do you stay up to date with the times and with competition? Well, I think, you know, that's for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's their fear, right? Like they're like, oh my God, what are you going to do when competition kind of comes? I think, you know, this is my third um, venture, and what you learn pretty early on is if you are successful and you're in an industry that's growing, there's always going to be competition. So you can't really worry too much about it, right? Like the, the fact, if, if there is no competition, that's probably when you have to worry more. Um, what you've got to do is you have to kind of come up with a business model and kind of look and try and um, create strategic advantages for yourself and your company. Um, I think we were able to do that. I think, you know, over the past 11 years, I mean, there's always been, you know, another player that's, you know, been nipping at our heels. Um, but in the past 11 years, we're certainly number one, and we've been number one now for the last 11 years. So um, I think we've done pretty well, pretty good on that, on that end. So since you've been number one for the past couple of years, what draws people to your website? 
I think part of it is kind of the culture, the kind of playfulness, not to taking yourself too seriously. Um, I think that's something that I think resonates with everyone. Um, certainly resonates with men, women, um, African Americans, and even outside of uh, outside of there. I think the other part of it is understanding who you are, right? And, you know, I think a lot of times when you're um, when you come in and you're entertainment news and you're kind of gearing yourself more towards the kind of gossipy side of the entertainment news, there's always this pressure. There's always a lot of people, especially when you get bigger, um, you have more access to celebrities and more celebrities who want to be your friends, that there's this pressure to say, hey, you know, why not just not talk about gossip anymore? Um, and I always saw that as a betrayal of your audience, right? So your audience knows exactly, your audience wants that. Um, your audience knows that that's what you, they're coming to get. Um, and you have to give it to them. If that's, you know, this is the business that we're in, we're in the business of gossip, and um, that's what you do. And so I've always kind of stuck to that, um, keeping the consumer first. I mean, that's the other side of it, right, that I'm, this is the third business that I'm in. Um, one thing that you learn pretty early on is that the customer is almost right. And uh, if you're going to be in business and you're going to stay around for the long haul, you have to do everything you can to please your consumer. Um, and that's exactly the concept behind Media Takeout. It's not about me. It's not about what I think. It's not about what you know what uh, um, any of the staff think. It really is about all about what the reader wants and what the reader is asking us to do. Um, and I think if you follow that, um, you're bound to be successful. Right. It's always the mindset of the customer is always right. You know. So it sounds like you yeah. take that into consideration. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It doesn't matter if you're running a you know a website. You're running a fruit stand, um, or you're running a Fortune 500 company. It's the same concept. Exactly. And one thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned was understanding who you are. I think that's such a key element when people are starting businesses or even just running events is you have to have an understanding of who you are because it's almost that mentality of if you don't know what you stand for, you'll fall for anything. And I wonder if there's any tips or advice that you have for people to kind of understand who they are when it comes to their brand. I think it's, there's kind of two questions. One is who you are, like who, you know, who me, Fred Morgan, who I am. Um, and then who the company, Media Takeout, what is the company? What is the company about? What are the values of the company? What is it that the company is there to do? Um, and I think a lot of times entrepreneurs get the two of them completely intertwined right so they'll be they'll say something like oh you know i always wanted to do x right like i always wanted to be uh a singer so i started this entertainment company and somehow this entertainment company is going to somehow lead me into this singing career that i have and, and you find a lot of entrepreneurs that kind of think like that they can't really distinguish them between themselves and the company i think you always run into trouble when you do that the first thing you have to do um to kind of answer your question is you really have to make a a real separation between who you are the person and who the company that you're starting is. The company that you're starting is will have its own personality, the company will have its own culture, the company will and it may be completely different than the one that you personally have. Um and I think, you know, the first step is kind of recognizing that and I think a lot of people don't. Um and once you do recognize it, you build the culture over time, right? Like you, it, it becomes, you know, it might be something as simple as I'm going to, you know, I'm going to create ice cream that'll make kids happy. 
and then you know after time you'll learn that you maybe you want to add natural ingredients and you'll um, you only uh, get it from sustainable farms and you know you, you build onto it and you add and add and add and then maybe you know two three years down the line you have this really sophisticated personality that your company is um, and that may have that may be completely different from the the, the, the personality of the the, the um, the uh, the founder, and that's all right, right? Because the personality of the uh, company is developed and crafted specifically to give the customer exactly what they want, um, and I think that's kind of the idea behind it. And you, as a person, aren't necessarily, um, you know, unless your name is uh, Donald Trump, you're not. Uh, you as a person are not, you know, creating a personality to um, to do nothing more than to satisfy other people. Right. And if you are using yourself as an entity, you as Fred and then you as media takeout, there has to be some kind of correlation or similarities between your identities, right? So you can be successful. I think you're right. I think that the two have to be consistent, right? Like they have to kind of um, work together, right? Like you have to be able to work in this company that you've created, right? But that doesn't mean that the two have to be identical, right? So there may be portions of the um, of the company that may be maybe they're exaggerated portions of your um, personality. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the exact same, but it has to work, right? Like you have to, you know, you're creating a company that you, the person, have to be happy actually getting up in the morning and going to, right? So in in that sense. Um, you know, it has to, the the two of them have to work together. Um, but like I said, I think that kind of going deeper into your point, right, and the people that kind of get the two confused, I think part of it is, um, you know, you always hear people talking about, oh, you know, you are your personal brand, and you know, you hear that over and over again. And I think that's true, but that's not that's not building a company. Like you're not when you're talking about your personal brand, you're really not building a company. You're just trying to create uh, different perceptions of yourself or trying to get another job or something that that really is a completely different animal than starting a business like i said there there are nuances to it i'm not trying to put it down or nothing that you shouldn't go out and, and try and create your own brand i think you should but recognize that that's not creating a business i think when you're creating a business you're doing something i think different than that you're doing something outside of yourself so that's just my point of view and it's a great point of view. I definitely agree with what you're saying. I feel like there's those lines often are blurred. So I'm glad you brought that point up. This episode of Black Tech Unplugged is brought to you by Black Tech Week, the leading conference for Black Tech professionals. Black Tech Week is taking place in Miami from February 6th through 10th, with speakers including Rodney Williams of Listener, venture capitalist vet Monique Woodard of 500 Startups, and of course, I'll be there. In fact, I'll be doing a live podcast episode at Black Tech Week, and you don't want to miss that. Tickets are currently available at blacktechweek.com. And of course, for being a part of the Black Tech Unplugged fam, I have a discount code for you. So enjoy 20% off your ticket by using the code BLACKTECH20. Can't wait to see you there. And so with Media Takeout, you know your site is for the culture. Has there ever been a time you feel like you should pivot? No, and you know it's it's a question that you always get, right? Which is especially when you've been as a company for a long time, it's been successful for a long time. People are always like, oh, you know, what's next, or where, you know, where are you going to take this next? And 
my response to people largely is look, entertainment news gossip is always going to be here right like if you if you went back in a time machine you know 4000 years ago and you went to Egypt the people in Egypt are going to be talking about who the pharaoh is sleeping with right so that's just it, it's just the natural state of uh of the way humans interact right. so this industry is always going to be here now there are obviously challenges right like i told you i've been around for 11 years there was no social media before um so the entire industry changes the mediums change um different challenges kind of present themselves and you have to be prepared and well established to kind of uh meet them head on and i think that's the part of the business that kind of is where the growth kind of happens right it's not so much that you're changing you're not you're going to stop talking about stop doing what it is that you've done, what it is that you've built a really strong and successful brand doing. You really don't want to kind of move out of that. You just want to kind of make sure that you're well positioned to take advantage of it going forward in the future. So as far as, you know, pressure to kind of change it, you know, it's something that people always ask. Just it's it's almost like I don't even know that, that people really mean it when they ask it, right? It's like when you wait when you walk down the street and say people say, Hey, how's it going? or hey, how was your weekend? I don't think people really expect you to, to say anything other than fine right? right um so i don't think that people really expect you to kind of do anything differently but you get the question all often and you can't help but kind of continue to think about it and that's where you have to kind of just kind of go back to it and recognize that this is the industry that you're in this is the brand this strong brand that you've created and you know to maintain that brand is an extent is incredibly difficult over the course of you know a year two years five years and ten years so that's where you have to kind of, if you're going to kind of focus or, or your energy on something, it's on brand maintenance at this point. Exactly. And one thing I also want to touch on. So when you got started, obviously it was, you know, it was a limited industry. There weren't people doing it and you were actually working with limited resources. And a lot of people when they're, you know, starting up have limited resources. What tips or advice do you have for them that, so that they can be successful and continue to grow just like you did? Well, I'd say that I think a lot of times people look at kind of, you know, I was a minority, right? I'm a black man starting a business. Um, I had limited resources and I was going up against some of the biggest companies in the world, right? I was going up against, my, at the time, my biggest competitors were Essence, which is a time-owned multi-billion dollar company, and BT, which was a Viacom-owned multi-billion dollar company, right? So it's Everything that you can think of is against me, right? And on paper, that's right. But you can, you know, and I guess this is the optimist in me, is for every weakness that you can find, there's also kind of a correlated strength that you have to be able to see too. And so if you can, if the weakness is going to be and you can accept it, but if you can kind of take advantage of the strength or the advantage that, that you get that's correlated to that weakness, um, you may actually be able to, to insert those odds. And that's, that's exactly what and how I was able to do it. And so perfect example is a lot of times you see, you hear companies and say, well, you know, we just didn't have enough money. We don't have enough money. We don't have a lot of access to capital. And there is definitely a downside to that. I don't have to go into it, right? The idea that most businesses that go under um, go under because of their inadequately financed. But the plus to that is because you really don't have a lot of money, 
you really start to experiment on doing a lot of innovative things that companies that have the big budgets really don't, right? Like they're, if, you have, if you're a big budget company, like at the time um, BT was and Essence was, there was a chance they could just throw money at the problem um, and overspend. And they weren't necessarily taking advantage of kind of small things that were out there that they could have done. Um, they, weren't, they were also bigger, so they weren't as nimble as we were. Um, and so what we would do is we would take advantage, we, were, we would change the site and the, the content on the site on a daily basis, right? So we found that something was working, we would kind of um, lean into the trend. So if people were talking about more Rihanna posts, we would increase the number of Rihanna posts. People were talking about more Beyonce posts, we'd talk about more Beyonce posts. People were talking about less about Ashanti, we'd talk about less, less about Ashanti. We were really doing this and making this calculation um, on a day-to-day -day basis. That's clearly what's being done now, but it was pretty revolutionary at the time. And it was something that companies like BET and companies like Essence they weren't even thinking about that. There wasn't anyone in the, in, the, in the building that even thought that that was a good idea because they didn't have to, right? They had all the money that they had. They had all the traffic that they had, and they, they, they weren't really looking to innovate. They were just kind of sitting around and, you know, uh, uh, eating uh, fat. So because we just didn't have any money, we just didn't have any staff. I mean, if we had $10 million and, you know, uh, big offices and stuff like that, we'd probably be thinking just like Essence was, was in, in BT, but because we didn't, we were just a bunch of people that were um, sitting around and kind of hungry trying to kind of um, figure out ways to keep the doors open. We were trying innovative things, and we were figuring out innovative things that were working. We were actively looking for partnerships with companies that um, maybe they weren't looking for. And so a lot of the hunger and the, you know, when you're hungry, you're able to kind of do things and, and really kind of work in ways that a company that isn't hungry isn't, doesn't. So that was kind of one advantage um, that we took. The, uh, the advantage of kind of a, the other big advantage that they had was they were insiders, right? They were, you know, BET in essence were the big kahunas, right? Like they had access to any celebrity in the world. And here I was, you know, a former corporate lawyer, I, had, I knew a couple of people, but I really had no access to anyone. And so on, on, on paper, that, that's a huge advantage that they had. But the correlation to that is, okay, well, you have access to all, you have access to all of these thousands or hundreds of celebrities, but you now have to maintain positive relationships with 100 celebrities when a lot of them are doing things um, that if you reported on, you, you'd break those relationships. So there were plenty of stories that we were able to report on that they just weren't able to report on because they needed, um, you know, Mary J. Blige to be on the cover of their magazine or they needed, um, you know, Rihanna to perform at the BT Awards. We weren't, we weren't uh, constrained in those ways. So like I said, there's, you know, to, to anyone that's starting out and they're thinking, you know, I have these insurmountable odds against me. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why I shouldn't be able to win. Like I said, if you look hard enough, every disadvantage that you have has a correlated, correlated advantage. And I think if you focus on the advantage, um, disadvantage is always going to be there. I'm not going to try and gloss over it. It's real. Um, but the advantage is real too. And so if you focus on the advantage, you may even, that not only will that advantage oftentimes be able to overcome the disadvantage, um, it might be able to take you to the next level also.
That's amazing because usually you're so used to hearing the stories of, like you said, the essence, you know, the bigger companies that everyone kind of, you know, gripes because they don't have the money and the resources. But I love that you touch on because you were a smaller company, you were able to innovate when you wanted to. You were able to jump on stories that you wanted to because you were smaller and you were allowed to be scrappy and hustle. So I love that you touch on that. Yeah, I was just, I was going to say, you know, it's so often you can really, I mean, look, I'm a, a black person, a black man trying to start a business and you get, you're getting hit with this. If, if you just kind of recognize what that, you know, to say that and say, okay, I, I tend to be successful in this area. You know, there are so many negative things that you're going to encounter if you don't have this attitude, if you don't kind of recognize from day one, before you even start, this is where you are, this is the position that you're going to be in, and this is the only way that you're going to win is going to be in these kind of, you know, in, in this way of kind of finding out the small advantages that you do have. Um, and and the, the, the best part of it is there really are so many of them, especially for, um, for African-Americans, Latinos, because there are entire swaths that are just completely ignored by mainstream, right? So there was, so perfect example is when I started Media Takeout, the idea of African-American celebrity news being the leading source of African-American news was seen as absolutely and utterly ridiculous by everyone out there, by black people, by black people in media, by white people, by white people in media. Everyone thought it was true even though it was obvious to me that it wasn't, right? Like, I was just like, well, how is that true, right? Like, so there is this thing called Perez Hilton and Perez Hilton and, you know, Entertainment Tonight and all these other things. For white, for white people, entertainment news seems to be really exciting and really kind of compelling. But for black people, there was this idea that it just really isn't, right? Like, so the black entertainment news was a lot of it was politically, uh, tin, it was, um, had a political claim to it. Oftentimes, it was just as vanilla as vanilla can be. There was no edge to it. There was no culture to it. And I just always said, why is that? And it was to me, it was obvious that it shouldn't be like that. Um, but because when you think about it, the, the, the people that are making it, right, like the, the, the people that are um, the heads of the, the, the TV networks, a lot of them aren't black, black, so they don't know. They don't know that black people are actually just the same as every other person in America, right? Like, they don't know that black people, we like to watch all kinds of movies. We like to watch superhero movies and we like to watch romantic comedies and we like to watch regular comedies and, you know, there's, there's no real difference to us. Um, they think that we we want to watch um, movies like either, either we want to watch a Tyler Perry movie or we want to watch, you know, an, a, a, a 12 Years a Slave movie or something like that and we just have this different genre, like this black movie genre is just different. It's not the same as white movie genre, it's different. And so that's just the way in every industry, I think in film it's kind of clear, but in every industry we're really seen like that, as consumers that have kind of a different profile to their regular uh, consumers in, 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 whichever, in, in a bunch of different ways. And I saw, certainly in the area of entertainment news, that that just wasn't true. And most, if they had enough black people working at these places, they would have known that it wasn't true too. But they don't. They don't have enough black people working in any of these places. They don't have enough black people working in Silicon Valley. They don't have enough black people working in, uh, in um, 
in uh, in, in media. They don't have enough black people working in, uh, in 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 TV. They don't have enough black people working in movies, and so they don't know a lot of, about their consumers that they're making it right. Like when there's when Facebook is launching a new product and they expect African Americans to adapt it, but they don't have a lot of African Americans working there. They really are at a disadvantage, right? It's hard to think about that. You know, a $500 billion company like Facebook is at a real disadvantage when you're talking about a, a certain relatively large number of their consumers, but they are, right? And so it just takes someone out there that recognizes this, takes advantage, sees the opportunity, takes advantage of it, uh, seizes it, and they can do relatively quickly what I was able to do. I mean, when, when, when I came in there, like I said, no one believed. Um, that African American entertainment news could ever be number could ever be the leading source of African American news. They would tell me that if you are going to do this, why don't you you know don't Fred don't focus only on African American news. Um, black people don't even really use the internet that much. People actually said that to me. Um, and within two years, not only were we the leading African American news source, we've been we were beating Perez Hilton, and we were neck and neck with places like TMZ. So it was even though we had this niche which was African-American, we were able to beat all the mainstream ones. Um, and I saw that before it even happened, right? So that was within two years I was able to do this. And I think that there are plenty of African-American entrepreneurs that if they really try to take advantage of um, their knowledge of the African-American audience, they can do the same. I mean, I was able to do it to companies like um, BTA Bicom and uh, and time and essence. Um, I, I'm confident that people can do the same thing to companies like Google and Amazon and uh, Facebook. It's interesting you bring that up because obviously you saw an area where information for African-Americans was lacking. But I have a question regarding, so you see that it needs to be more diverse. What do you suggest for making the industry more diverse? Do you suggest that people go out and actually find people like us who actually have the experience so they can ha stop having these disasters. We can use, obviously, the Pepsi commercial as an example. Or the latest was um, Dove. I don't know if you saw the Dove advertisement. So it's like, how do we stop these things from happening? How can we make the industry more diverse and understanding of what we actually go through as African-Americans? Well, I think that there are, there are two answers to that. One answer is, I think, that there's a there's the negative publicity of kind of these screw-ups, right? Like there's this Pepsi ad that they could have done a little bit better and not insult African-Americans or this Dove ad that they could have probably done better if it's not insult African-Americans. So I think that they should um, hire more black people so as not to, you know, actively insult a large number of Americans or a large number of people in the world. So I think no brand really wants to insult people, potential customers. So I think that it's in their interest to hire more black people to um, to stop insulting us. That's one end, right? Like, okay, they're not going to insult us. Let's say that they can hire enough people to stop insulting us frequently. But that's only part of the problem, right? The other part of the problem is how are we able to actively be inclusive in all aspects of a company, right? So when you hear about, um, you know, the lack of uh, African American founders having access to uh, venture capital funding, when you hear about the number of African-American executives that are in Silicon Valley, you hear about the number of African, VC, African American VCs, I think you, you start to realize that for a number of reasons, we as a people are not actively participating in the 
kind of tech startup economy in the way that we, we should. So the question is, how do we change that? And I'm not sure. Um, I don't I haven't spent a lot of time out in the Valley, but I'll give you a little bit of um, insight into what I saw, right? Okay. When, like, like I said, when, when, um, when I started media takeout, there was, there always was entertainment. They always had kind of one or two African-American people on, on in place that kind of sat in to do their African-American news. When within two years after we had clearly beaten everyone in the industry, other than kind of the, the absolute gigantic players like TMC, which is owned by tele, telepictures and actually had a TV show um, with it, there was tremendous pressure on all the other brands out there, including TMC, to start including African-American celebrity news in their news. And it's something that I think a lot of people don't even recognize right now. So, you know, when you go on TMZ and you hear you hear them talking about Black China and you hear them talking about, um, you know, uh, an NBA star or whatever, before there was media takeout, they did not do that at all. It was Britney Spears and Paris Hilton and there was random white celebrities that you never heard of. They almost never touched African-American celebrity news. And why did they start touching African-American celebrity news? Why did they start hiring more African-American people on their uh, payroll and, and moving kind of a lot of the stuff uh, um, towards kind of African-American culture? It's because they felt us breathing down their neck. It was competition that forced them into it. You didn't have to, you know, sit down and have a conversation with them. You didn't have to bring in community leaders and sit down and talk to the people over at TMZ. The competition that we were able to provide forced them to take that action. And in the same way that I saw we were able to do it here, I suspect the exact same thing can happen in Silicon Valley or in any other industry. That's very interesting. So it was the competition that made them switch their perspective on reporting. Yeah. Just... I mean, you can look at Daily Mail, too. You can look at um, there's almost anything. You, you, you see the clear urban tint to it, which shouldn't be there, right? Because if they're just talking about mainstream celebrities, you shouldn't see them talking about, well, why are they spending so much time talking about Black China? Or, you know, and you, if you think about it long enough and you start to see it over time, you say, wow, well, I, I see why, because the places out there that are really winning, like when you take out, are forcing them into this. And you know what, I was just, it was just interesting that you said that. I'm thinking, why can't we do that in Silicon Valley? Well, I think that it, it, it has to happen, right? Like when, when they see it, right? Like when they see a company, when, they, when an African-American company that's founded turns into a billion-dollar company in an industry and takes advantage of all of, fundamentally, all of the flaws that the other companies are making towards African-American, the African-American culture, that day that that happens is the day that I think a lot of this will start to go away. Obviously, it's nothing, you know, it's never going to be an easy problem. It's never going to be a problem that kind of is going to go away completely, um, probably not in my lifetime. But I think you start to see it because it's, it changes the focus, right? The, 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 the you know, the imperative, and, the, and I guess it goes back to kind of where we started, is, you know, the business is there to keep the customer happy. and if the business recognizes that to keep the customer happy, they have to hire more African-American employees. If the business recognizes that to, to keep the customer happy, they have to be more uh, attentive to African-American culture, not because it's the politically right thing to do. 
um, which it is, by the way, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about economically, that's the way to go. Um, and I think when you talk to people out there, um, I'm not sure that a lot of people in the tech world buy it. Now, I buy it not because, not just because I'm black, but because I did it and I saw it. And so, I, you know, it's not hard for me to kind of grasp because it, it, I lived it, right? So, in, you know, I, I think that I'm, I, I, you know, I had a pretty good life, but, you know, I, I don't think that I'm the only person out there that can do this. I think there are plenty of other people that are out here that are um, capable of doing it too. And I completely agree. There's so many people that are making great moves and great strides in the industry. So the only way is up for the future. I agree. So let's switch gears a little bit because you keep mentioning you are a three-time entrepreneur, but we haven't gone into what businesses you previously had. So tell my listeners, what other businesses did you have before Media Takeout? So the first business I was uh, with is a company called Selectnet. It was a, so kind of take a couple of steps back. Um, I was in law school and business school at the time, right around uh, 2000, 2001. And that's when the initial kind of dot-com craze happened. And so while I was in school, a ton of my friends were recruited out of business school to run companies, a lot of them out in Silicon Valley. And so the, the pressure was kind of everyone wanted to kind of leave business, leave school and just kind of go out to the West Coast and make a, a billion dollars. A lot of people out there did it, and but most people didn't. Most people lost their shirts. I was in uh, the second camp, unfortunately. So I joined a company called uh, SeaLikeNet. It was a tech startup that um, was reselling uh, telecommunications products. We were able to raise a lot of money, um, but it all basically went bust when the market fell apart. Um, and it taught me a lot there. Uh, probably the first lesson is that when I went into the business, I really didn't care what it did, what it was, and really didn't even really have a goal of making a tangible quality product. I didn't even, I didn't care, right? Like the idea was a lot of the numbers made sense, um, the projections made sense, we could raise a lot of money off of this, let's kind of hustle this thing and kind of do whatever we can to kind of get our exit and then get out of here and have all this money. And it didn't matter what, what we were doing. We were just kind of every move that we made was to give us a better exit instead of to try and create a better company. And um, when the whole thing went bust, I realized a couple of things. One is that I really didn't understand the telecom business like I needed to, and I'd spent so much of my time there. And the reason why I didn't is because I was spending most of my time thinking about finance and VCs and raising money and all this other stuff and not about um, starting and, and creating a good quality product. That was kind of one thing. Was I almost felt like I wasted a lot of time there. But second, you know, if you're just kind of waiting for that exit, the exit may or may not happen, right? Like there's a lot of reasons why an exit might not happen. But if you have a real solid business that you've built, it almost doesn't matter, right? Because you've got a solid business anyway. And so when this is precisely what happened with us, we had, there was, once we were no longer able to raise any more money, there was no business because the business was never meant to do anything other than raise money and then get sold 
uh, for a billion dollars, right? So if you couldn't raise money, there was no business. Um, and so the second that the money got shut off, uh, the doors got shut off, got shut down. And, you know, it was incredibly, you know, I, I don't, I, I suspect that there's other entrepreneurs on this um, that are listening to this. And, you know, the one thing that you learn as an entrepreneur is that you are going to face um, extreme challenges and setbacks. And every once in a while, you're going to have a failure in your life. And that was, that was kind of big, right? Like here I was, you know, this hotshot MBA that, you know, everyone was talking about me because, hey, this guy's not only in school, while he's in school, he's working at the company, he's raising all this money, he's going to go do this stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's like gone. And you got to basically put your tail between your legs and kind of go back. And all your friends are asking, hey, what happened to this company that you had that was supposed to make you a billionaire? Um, it's, there's embarrassment to it. There's, you know, a sense of kind of questioning your worth. So, you know, you get through that. Once you push through that, um, you got to just look at where you were and kind of take advantage of um, what you did learn from the situation, right? Like there was a very valuable lesson to be learned. You know, you're you're dealing with all of this pain and anguish from this event that happened. The least you can do is get some good quality information out of this that's going to help you in the future. Um, and so that's what I did. I kind of looked at it and kind of really take took a real hard look at myself, um, my motivations, um, my skills, um, where I my weaknesses. And really started to kind of craft my comeback. And that's what I did. And I like that you mentioned that because a lot of people now think that they have to jump into entrepreneurship. You know, everything is, I don't want a boss. I want to be my own boss. And just from hearing your story, it's situations where you can work with, with other people and other companies that you learn the skills that you just described. And that's key. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I think a lot of times people, um, they say, like, I don't want my own boss. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have a boss, right? Like, and it, there's not, you know, technical, the, the, the word boss, you know, is not in their, their name. But they, I, don't, I don't care who you are. There's someone that can call you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and have you sweating, saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this. There's someone in your life that can have you saying, I really don't want to go to work in, the, in, the, in, in you know, at, at 9 o'clock on Monday have to see this person, right? Whoever that person is, that's your boss, right? So you will always have that person in your life. You will always have that person that's overlooking you, that person that's scrutinizing you, that person that will have some control over your finances in your life. That's just the way of the world. That's the nature of the world. I don't care if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you've got the board directors, uh, uh, whoever you are, you've got someone that's, that's, that, that overlooks you and has the authority to really make your life difficult. Um, so in that sense, you're always going to have a boss. So entrepreneurship doesn't kind of get rid of that. Um, I do think that, that a lot of times people look at entrepreneurship as, you know, a lot of times you just face a, kind of a career crisis and you hit a, you hit a wall in your, in your career um, or your career just doesn't seem to be going in the way that you, you expected it to be. And so then you, you naturally start to look back. It's like if you're in a relationship and your relationship is working, you naturally start looking back at all the previous relationships in which you always wanted in a person and a partner 
right? And that's what entrepreneurship, this dream of entrepreneurship is, right? It's like, okay, well, when I was, you know, 18, I kind of had this business idea that I thought was a good one. Hey, you know, I, I really like knitting. What if I turn this into, you know, this big knitting company? You know, so I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurship is, is it's healthy kind of working through career issues. Um, do I think most people that kind of have these dreams and aspirations should be entrepreneurs? The answer is probably no. I think that there are plenty. What you really need, I think, is a fulfill a, a really fulfilled uh, um, career life. And for some people, because of the skill sets that they possess and the nature of um, of their personalities, entrepreneurship is best for them. But I suspect that for most people, they'd be better off in a kind of nurturing career environment. And so to a lot of people, I just say, you know, a lot of times when you're thinking about entrepreneurship, there are other kind of things about it that you like. Like, so a lot of people are saying, well, I, I, I just don't like to go in an office every day. Well, there are plenty of careers out there that you can have that you don't have to go in an office every day. Some people are like, I just don't like someone looking over my shoulder. I like kind of the freedom to kind of do what I want to do. There are plenty of careers out there where you can do that um, that don't have to be entrepreneurship. So I think that they're, they're, entrepreneurship is a specific place to go. Um, it's a place that I think more of us as African-Americans need to be in. So I'm not going to, by any sense, by any stretch of the imagination, try and stop people from going into it because I think more people need to be into it. But I don't think that you have to. I think that there's, there are plenty of other ways that you can go in and affect your career, positive ways that aren't this. Right. So we still have to hear about how you got to your journey to media takeout. So that was one instance. What's the next part? Ah, so, so, right. So uh, the first business, kind of, we ran out of money. We weren't able to raise any more money. The doors got shut. I basically put my tail between my legs. Um, I was lucky enough that I did have two degrees, so I was able to get a job um, as a corporate lawyer on Wall Street. And I did that for, I think, three and a half years and saved up basically every penny that I made um, that wasn't spent on paying my student loans or um, paying my rent with the idea that I was going to – I knew that the, the, the tech recession wasn't going to last. So I was like, let me just kind of stay at this uh, in Wall Street where I could, I was making a good amount of money, put away all the money that I made, and then I'm going to come up with a, a business idea, but I'm going to do it in a better way than the way that I did it before. So that's what I did. Instead of kind of saying, hey, let me just grab whatever idea is hot out there in the end, that, that I think I could raise money for and that I think I can make a billion dollars for, I instead said, let me try and figure out a way to make a product or service that me, Fred, would use and that I think a lot of my friends and the people that I know would in fact find useful also. You have certain clothes that are that you clearly send to the dry cleaner, right? Like the suit. And you have certain clothes that you'll clearly send to the laundromat. But then you always have these in the middle clothes, right? Like that pair of jeans that you really could put in the wash, but you want to kind of you don't really want to put in the dryer um, because you paid, paid a lot of money for it. Or you might have that sweater that you you can put in the wash, but it has to be washed cold and you have to use more light. So you always have these in the middle clothes. And what ends up happening is sometimes you send them to the dry cleaner or sometimes they end up just sitting in a bag and you just end up never using them. And so I was like, well, why should this be? Why couldn't there be one place? I mean, I was a busy professional. I'm assuming that a lot of other people are busy professionals out there. 
why is there one place that basically did it all? You put them all in the bag. You didn't have to worry about separating them out. And they did everything that they, that the way that you needed it to be. So they read all the labels. And if it said dry clean only, they would dry clean it. If it said hand wash, they would hand wash it. If it said machine wash cold, they would do that. And if it said line dry, they would line dry it. And they would do that for every piece of clothing in your, um, in your order. And they would put it together. And, and that was the idea. And it was an internet based. So there was, um, there was no storefront. Um, people would, uh, go on the website, schedule an order and, we come by, pick the clothes, uh, do the laundry, and return it, I think, within 48 hours. So that was the, the basic business idea. One thing I learned was that I wanted to make a product that I actually used, right? So that the, the idea behind the laundry spa, which was named the country company, was something that I actually thought that there was a need for. I talked to my friends and people around, and we all kind of agreed that there was a need for it. But then the second thing that I learned um, from the first company that I was in is that we had really slim margins. And that meant that, you know, especially as we were going into new areas where we couldn't really accurately predict our costs, because we had such small margins, any kind of delta on the, the, the cost could really just put us out of profitability pretty quickly. And so here I was, you know, um, Fred, who knew about telecom company kind of, um, who was a lawyer is now going to be a dry cleaner, right? Like George Jefferson. Um, I didn't know anything about dry cleaning. I had, before then, I, I had probably done like four loads of laundry before we came up with this idea in my entire life. So I didn't know much about it. We had hired a person that knew something about it, but I didn't know, right? So I knew that the that operationally, we needed to have a lot of leeway in order to kind of make this company work because. Generally, um, laundry and dry cleaning services operate on really, really small margins. And so I knew if we got into business and operated on those, those kind of margins, because of what I saw in the last business, we could really, we'd really be, um, we'd really have to make sure that we did everything right. So instead, we decided to premium price the laundry. So we had a bunch of really cool ideas behind branding. Um, we hired some really interesting cool writers to kind of write the copy on the site and we sold it as a premium service so while at the time i think the average uh laundry and dry cleaning price was 65 cents a pound in the city we had our laundry dry and dry cleaning prices at two dollars and 25 cents a pound on average and i think we were three x the average dry cleaning price partly because i mean obviously you want to charge as high a price as you can but because we knew that we needed that leeway in order to make it work and, you know, looking back at it, I am so glad that we charged a price. We did because we needed every penny of that leeway to make, to make the company work. Um, and it worked. We, within, uh, I think the, in the beginning, it kind of took off, it was slow to take off. We got a couple of really good write-ups. Um, and it's a, it was a New York-based service. We got a write-up in the New York Post and in the Daily News, which are the two biggest newspapers out here. We also got a write-up in... Uh, Daily Candy, which at the time was a really, really influential um, online newsletter, and we got we were in the on the in the, a couple of other papers. We were in um, the local TV. We got a bunch of celebrity clients, and the company really took off. I mean, you know, you always think about, you know, you have these ideas that you know, you're just going to sit down and come up with this idea for a company, and all of a sudden people are going to be beating down the doors. And, you know, entrepreneurs are always like, oh, that never really happens. And for a while it didn't until we got a couple of write-ups, and then it really did. We really had 
from, I'd say, month three to the time that we sold the business, there really was not a week that we didn't have more customers than we can possibly uh, service. And that, I think, was pretty amazing. That's definitely amazing. I mean, how many people can say that they've done that, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I know, you know, it's, I think a lot of times you, you have a successful company, and don't get me wrong, that the idea of having more customers than you can service opens up an entirely uh, new set of problems uh, that you have to deal with. It's definitely a good problem to have. It's better than the opposite problem, right, than having no, no customers, I think, that, which is um, what a lot of entrepreneurs face. Right. Well, let's actually go through them now. Go ahead. Let's talk about it. What's like kind of some of the growth issues that you've experienced? So probably the the biggest problem with that kind of growth is that you can never get your cost structure under control, right? Like you're you're constantly looking to expand, and especially when you're expanding quickly and you don't really know what you're doing. Um, at the time, like I said, I didn't really, I had never even really been in this business before. And that the other side of it is um, laundry and dry cleaning are incredibly labor-intensive industries. So especially if you're going to go through, um, like the way that I described the service, right, like someone who's going to literally have to look at every piece of laundry. They're going to have to sort it in different places. There are ways of tagging and keeping um, track of the items so that they don't get lost. Um, but that system, that entire system actually takes a lot of men or, or women hands on items. So you end up with, um, if you're talking about 10 or 20,000 pounds of laundry a day, like we were talking about, you end up with, you know, from no employees to an entire factory full of employees um, in the course of like three months, right? Which is basically where we were. I think we went from like zero to like 70 employees, something crazy like that in over the course of like months. Wow. And the problem with that, yeah, right. So the problem with that is, you were. I remember when, when uh, there was a point where we had a an, an open. Um, there was a uh, Spanish language um, newspaper here in New York called El Diario, and we had an open uh, ad in there for people to come in, for women to come in there and help us with the laundry. And every woman that came in through the door, we were like, "Can you start today? Yes, you're hired. Can you start today? Yes, you're hired." And we were just hiring everyone that came in the door. Anyone that answered that. Ad literally got hired. Now, um, question: When the you problem with, when you went that route and you hired anyone that came in the door, did you ever run into any issues? Yeah, that's the problem, right? Like you don't know you you were supposed to build your kind of your company with people that you trust, people that are competent, people that are hardworking, people that actually want to be there. Uh, right. And just by tell you, when you take everyone uh, coming in the door, you you know some of them are going to be that, but a lot of them aren't. And they're you know it, over time that's going to show. And then because you know when you have you know like the whole the whole one bad apple can spoil a whole bunch, that's really true. So you end up having a bunch of bad people, and then they create this kind of cancerous culture that grows, that festers, um, and then you have to deal with that, right? So that was. That was the downside of kind of growth. And while all this is happening, you're obviously not being efficient because you're just hiring a bunch of people. Um, and so your cost structure just kind of goes out. It goes through the roof, right? Like I said, that was part of the thing that I anticipated. But even, you know, the 
spreadsheet and the you know the performers that I created they were even off right like the cost structure was way out of control I mean that was eventually when we sold the business which was um, to one of our main competitors the idea was even then the cost structure was just so out of control that if we wanted to do it um, we'd have to essentially go out and raise a crap ton of money, build our own facility, which was going to be like a 70,000 square foot uh, factory in, in New York. And it was just, it was going to be an incredible endeavor to kind of do. And before we did that, and at the time it was me and my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, I'm in the business, we had to kind of decide, do we want to do this? Is this, you know, is this the, is this where we want to dedicate our life for the next you know, 10 years, 15 years um, in this kind of business. And like, like I said, that is the laundry and dry cleaning business is a tough business. There's, you know, you hear about restaurants that are a tough business. You hear about, uh, you know, I can't think of any business that's tougher than that because like I said, the number of kind of hands-on items, hands-on pieces and how often things go wrong, right? Like in the laundry and dry cleaning service, the idea of having a 2% exception rate is seen as good. And I know people are wondering what's an exception rate. An exception rate is a screw-up, which could be anything like your clothes weren't um, done properly, right? Like maybe they didn't get the stain out. That's considered an exception. Or it could be we lost your item, right? And we're talking about 2% of what happens is that, right? So... You know, 2% of the items, if you know, take worst case scenario, you know, one and a half, 1% of the items you lost, or you lose or destroy. And so you're dealing with people that are calling you up and telling you that they hate you and your, your service is the worst. Um, you And these are expensive items. Sometimes there's celebrities that call you and say this kind of stuff. So it's, it, it, there's a lot of downside to that business, um, but there's a lot of upside too. I mean, you know, the part of the reason why I went into it is because um, in addition to the idea of that I thought it was a good idea, that I thought creating this, this service to people like me who were a uh, young professional was valuable, there was this other kind of broader picture, which was when you looked at all these different industries from the, you know, from the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, they've all been kind of wiped out and been kind of overcome by this conglomerate, right? Like there was one time when there was a hardware store in every corner, you know, and at least in every uh, every community. Now there's no longer there. Why? Because there's a Home Depot. In one place there was a stationery store in almost every community. Now they're not there. Why? Because there's a Staples, right? And so a lot of these kind of small mom and pop businesses, these small mom and pop industries, have really just did, disappeared, and a one gigantic. Um, um, player has taken the field. And so with the exception of the laundry and dry cleaning industry, right, that's still the one mom and pop business that most people listening to this podcast is still using. And so my idea was, in addition to kind of this other thing, the bigger idea was, hey, if I can get this right with the premium prices, with the idea that we kind of work out a lot of these kinks, we can kind of use the premium prices to kind of build this thing out Get some energy, get some traction, at least in the bigger cities, and nationwide, you know, whatever, however many years down the line, 
be the one place where people send their clothes to, whether you're living in Omaha or New York City or Miami or Chicago or wherever. And that was the idea behind it. And I still believe that someone is going to figure that out. I thought it was going to be me. Um, and even after we sold the company and, you know, all things considered, I think we did pretty well on it. It's still to this day, and that was 12 years ago, to this day it bothers me that we did it because I know that someday somebody's going to do it. They're probably going to do it in a way similar than uh, the, the way that I proposed doing it, and they're going to make a billion dollars doing it. So do, would you say that might be an area maybe where you kind of regret or that you maybe even oh, yeah. want to revisit? Yeah. I definitely would regret it. Revisit it, I'm not sure, just because, you know, you move forward in the world. I don't know if you want to kind of go back. I'm not sure I would do that. Um, but there's definitely regret there. Understandable. And it's you live and you learn, right? Yeah, I mean, and that kind of shows kind of both ends, right? Which is you have kind of the two worst ways of exits, right? You have a relatively successful exit, which we had with the laundry spa, um, and there's a large amount of regret, right? <laughs> and then you had kind of the first exit, which was get out, you know, uh, we're cutting off the money. <laughs> that was my first exit. Um, and there was regret there too, right? So it's one of those things that, you know, I'm not sure that you ever kind of leave the entrepreneur game happy. And that's intriguing. Why do you say that? Because the win, you know, it's like, you know, starting a company is like having a kid, right? And you put all this energy and effort into him or her, you know, you, you, you know, you, you want the best for them. You spend all your time, you make all these sacrifices for them. And then it's always cut short at some point, right? The idea of the exit is it's cut short, right? And there's, always this promise at the end that goes unfulfilled no matter where it is right that and that's why you see a lot of people just never leave no matter how much money they make right like you see guys like like mark zuckerberg right like he's got all the money in the world he isn't what is he doing over there he can open up a foundation and do a lot of great things in the world and i'm sure at some point he will but why does he continue to do what he's doing right and that's just because he wants to see it to its natural end right like he wants to he wants to take his baby as far as he could possibly take it. Right. It's not right. about money anymore. It's not about anything, right? So it's if you were to cut cut it off for him right now, even if it was a fantastically profitable way, he'd have to be unfulfilled, right? Because where he sees it going is always going to be more than and further and higher, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be where he is. And so if you're, I think with most entrepreneurs, I think it's the same, maybe not to that level, right? I think most people would, be happy to cash out if they were in Mark Zuckerberg's position, but I think the, the concept is still the same. That's just an interesting side of entrepreneurship that you rarely hear people talk about. And so I appreciate that you brought that value and that conversation to the podcast. So thank you for that. And so after you have done this laundry business, what was your next steps in the path? So after we did, um, we did the laundry, did the laundry spot, sold that. Um, and here I was probably around 30 and I was like, you know, what do I do with my, with the rest of my life? I kind of knew I wanted to go into entrepreneurship. I wasn't that far removed from kind of the practice of law and wall street that I couldn't go back. In fact, the, the, the firm I was with, God bless them. They were, they were like, you know, come back. We really want you, you know, we, we saw what you did. It was fine. Great. 
yeah, just trying to entrepreneurship, come back and, you know, we'll put you on the same, you know, career trajectory that you were in before. But I was like, no, I kind of knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, that was always what I wanted to be. And even when I took the job there, I didn't tell them at the time, but when I took the job there, it was because I kind of didn't have any entrepreneurial angles. Um, but now I've kind of I had two businesses under my belt. Um, I had a lot of experience, I, th I thought, and in fact, true. Um, understanding kind of the nuances and seeing all these different scenarios where um, that entrepreneurs often find themselves in and managed to kind of maneuver my way through a lot of them. So I was like, okay, I, you know, I'm kind of seasoned at this right now. I'm going to try it again. And that's when I launched Media Takeout. And that's when, you know, part of it, you know, why I did it, part of it was um, recognizing kind of the hole in the market, recognizing how African-American consumers were being underserved by the current products that were out there. And the idea that, I, because of who I was and the numerous disadvantages slash advantages that I had, um, I was, and the company was uniquely positioned to actually win in this area. And so, you know, I saw that win. I mean, you know, the launch spot win was a harder kind of win to see. I mean, I saw the possibility, but I couldn't really see the win. The, um, the tech company win, I saw it. But I saw wins everywhere at the time. <laughs> but the laundry spot win, I mean, the media take out win, that one was as clear as day to me. It was as clear as day because you can just look. You can say this is what works in every other community. This is what works with mainstream Americans. And it's not here. So if we put it here and it performed as well as it did over here, this is what you get. And so it was clear to me that it would work. Um, the idea of how and, you know, what it would look like and all that other stuff, that was a lot less clear. Um, and that's what took a little bit of time to kind of build and kind of create and build the brand. Um, but the idea of kind of going into that, that was the, of all of the different entrepreneurial decisions I had to make, that one was by far the easiest to start media takeout. And obviously it's been the most successful too. So speaking on success, obviously you've told my listeners the whole journey. And but you are a very successful man. How are you so successful? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is just really trying to take advantage. I, it, well, I think this. I think sometimes it's best to kind of recognize your strengths and your weaknesses. And I think most people have a pretty good idea of what their strengths are. Most people say, "Well, you know what? I'm pretty good at math. You know, because I got a this. You know." 1400 on my SATs and I did really well in the math section. They might say I was a you know math major or whatever. So they, they, I think people have a generally a, a, a fairly good understanding of their strengths. But their weaknesses, I think most people really don't know what their weaknesses are. And so a lot of times you'll see people that'll have one part of them is just weak. Maybe they're not good at sales, right? Like they're great at numbers. Um, they're good at motivating their staff, but they're just not good at making a sale. And so generally speaking, in that case, then a person could be a great motivator of staff. A person could be great with numbers, but terrible at sales. And so the general presumption that people will tell them is, you need to go and figure out how to be better in sales. 
go to seminars, you know, you really kind of have all this other stuff going for you. You really need to go and go to a bunch of seminars and maybe take a couple of classes and talk to a bunch of people and maybe they'll help you with sales. To me, I actually think that's terrible advice. Why do you, you think that's terrible advice? I know, I know. I explain it. To me, I think that every human being has natural weaknesses. Everyone does. And we have natural strengths too. And I think far too often we play towards our weaknesses and we minimize our strengths. Mm -hmm. And I think what you need to do is you need to play to your strengths and ignore or try and supplement your weaknesses. So in the case of that guy, I say, you know what you need to do? You don't understand sales at all. Get yourself a good sales guy and spend all of your time working on being the best motivator and the best numbers guy in the industry. And if you do that, you actually have turned yourself into something special. As opposed to maybe you go out there, maybe you take a bunch of seminars, maybe you take a bunch of classes, maybe you talk to a bunch of people, maybe you become pretty good at sales. You're never going to be good at it because it's just not naturally in you. But you could be okay at it. And then because you've kind of grown, right, like you've seen how far you've come in sales, you might actually spend a lot more of your time than you should in that. So I think it's it's a it's something that's kind of backwards in the way you're thinking. And I think for a lot of people, it's something that's just unsettling to kind of even accept weaknesses in themselves and just kind of say, okay, that's what it is, and I just kind of move on forward. But I found that my success has always been towards playing towards my strengths, and there are plenty of them, and steering away from my weaknesses. And so there's plenty of times that there'll be an opportunity for one reason or another that'll come across come to me and it'll be in one of my weaker areas and I'll just turn it down. Not because it's not a good idea, not because it wouldn't even necessarily help me, but because I've got to play towards my strengths. And so if there's anything about me that kind of has kind of uh, made me successful, it's by actively doing that, right? My optimism, my ability to turn a company from an idea to, to a full-fledged company to motivate people around me, those kind of things. And I completely agree. I mean, I think that, that everyone out there has a real strength, not just a strength where you're kind of good at something, where you are better than most people at this thing, and that if you go head-to-head -head with most people in this thing, that you'd win. And that is exactly where you need to be. Wherever that is, that's where you need to be. If that's you... What, you know, I'm not going to, you know, speculate. Everybody has their own skills. But whatever you, when you figure out what that skill is that you're better than everyone at it, is it, that's the arena where you need to be playing because that's the arena where you will win. Exactly. And I love that you emphasize that because, and I know because you're successful, most people are definitely wanna, going to want to hear this question. Describe a typical day in the life of Fred. Okay. Well, I'm, I will say I'm married and I have three kids. So three kids. My day looks, yeah. My day is wow. a lot of that <laughs> uh, <laughs> outside of um, business stuff. So I get up in the morning. Usually I get up before everyone. Um, I get into the office really early. So now I probably get into the office at about four, between four and four thirty, And I spend um, probably the first hour or so just kind of going through social media, figuring out what happened the night before. This is all on the kind of celebrity news side. 
and to see if anything kind of exploded, erupted, or, or the like. Um, by that time, probably around six o'clock or so, um, everyone, the entire uh, editorial staff is on kind of, we, we use um, Telegram to talk to each other and we kind of go back and forth and I'm, I essentially go over kind of the stories that the editorial staff is going to be working on in the morning. And that probably goes from like six to like 7.30 or so. Then I, I'll probably go out and get a cup of coffee and something to eat, come back, um, look over what the site looks like. Um, that's usually by 9, 10, 10.30. Um, 10.30 usually, um, knock on wood, we'll publish the site. And then kind of the rest of Fred's business day begins. And a lot of that is partially just kind of talking to staff and talking to them about um, editorially what they need to be thinking about for the next day because it's a news organization. You know, the second that you publish the paper or the, the, the day's edition, you have to immediately start looking at what you're working on for the next day. And so we'll talk about that for a little while. And then I'll talk with, have a, a number of business meetings, a lot of um, projects that are kind of up in the air that we've just kind of um, working on, like TV projects, radio projects, stuff like that. Um, a lot of times it turns into nothing. Sometimes it turns into something. So you have to kind of actively always do these kind of meetings. So that'll usually take me to around lunchtime, um, noon or so. And then I try from like after lunch, so like let's say from one to like three or four, I try to actively just kind of think about um, and read about the industry and the opportunities that are out there. And I know that's, you know, to some people, that's a pretty large chunk of the day, right? Three hours um, in the afternoon. But I really think that's absolutely necessary. And that's part of what um, has made me been so successful, made me think I've been so successful over the past 11 years. It's really trying to get an idea of not just the position that we're in right now, but kind of where the industry, where the world is going um, over the next two years, three years, and begin to make the preparations now for where things are going to be two or three years from now. And so, you know, so like right now, we're, or I'm already thinking about, you know, media takeout 2019 um, and the subtle changes that we're going to have to make in order to make it a, you know, a um, very well um, visited site in 2019, right? It's completely, it's going to be completely different than what that means for 2017. Um, and you have to slowly begin to kind of lay the foundation, kind of do that. And that's part of what we do. Um, so I'd say, you know, when I first started out, there was a lot of my day was editorial. Now I'd say the majority of my day is not editorial, um, which is fine, um, even though it's generally a lot more fun to read about uh, Beyonce and Rihanna than it is to read about trends in digital advertising. But you've got to do it, and you've got to at some point become the grown-up. <laughs> uh, and that's where I am. So that's that's my day generally. Um, I don't usually go to too many events, even though I get invited to a ton of them. Uh, I don't go to parties a lot because I'm married and I have three kids. 
and I want to go home to them usually at a reasonable time, pick them up from school if I can, uh, and uh, try and spend as much time as I can with my family. Because the other thing that you realize is, you know, as you grow, you start to realize the importance of kind of families, right? And you realize, you know, when I was, you know, when I was thinking about just the businesses that I started, right? When I was um, starting the um, C-LACnet, here I was, you know, some 20-something-year-old kid in business school and starting a company that I didn't know about, right? But here I am now, you know, 42 years old with a family and, you know, wife and kids. And one of the things that kind of strikes me is that I can't tell you how few technologies are actively aimed towards kind of me, right? Who I am now. Me, me not who I am now, because I guess, you know, I got, I got a ton of apps on my phone and stuff. But, like, when I go and talk to, like, some of the other dads or some of the moms, I know they have, like, Facebook and Instagram that they probably don't even use. Sometimes Snapchat. Rarely do any of them even know how to use any of that stuff. They have, like, maybe Open Table and, uh, you know, a couple of other apps. But you wonder, you're like, isn't that weird that here, you know, you can't go a day without 19 new tech companies that are aimed specifically at targeting millennials. And here you have a bunch of parents, you know, that are relatively stable, you know, in their 30s and early 40s and have a ton of money, are great consumers, really loyal brands, and there's almost no tech companies that are actively courting them. I always thought that that was kind of interesting. And I can tell you that um, there's a tech project that I'm working on right now to address that. Okay. Can you tell the listeners any details about that, what you're working on? I mean, right now it's it's still a little bit early. So we're kind of working through some of the kinks. But I'll be sure as soon as we launch to make sure I talk to you. You'll be one of the first people I uh, I uh, disclose everything to. That would be awesome. And so I have a few more questions for you. And actually, this is a great lead-in. Do you consider yourself a tech person or what I like to call a techie? I don't, I, I, I'm not sure how to answer that question because I don't know. So on one hand, I mean, maybe I am, right? Because I run a company that's on the internet and it's been incredibly successful. It's grown, got the growth, kind of growth, toxic growth that you see in tech companies. So on one hand, there's a yes to that. But on the other hand, part of the reason why I've been so successful or part of the reason why for my success, in my view, is that I never kind of, I never, I always operated on the customer first kind of basis. So it was always about how to make something that the customer wants, right? And so it wasn't so much about kind of playing this game of technology, right? Playing this game with VCs and, you know, who's on what list and the other stuff. I mean, people don't put me on the list. I don't care, right? Like, I think I should be on some, but if you don't want to put me on it, that's fine. Um, Because it was always like, I know that if I can get the consumer, I can convince the consumer to, to kind of use whatever product that I have, then I've won, right? And so it's, to me, I don't know that I see a business whether it's, you know, running a tech company, 
running a fruit stand or running an auto repair shop as anything different, right? Like there's the business principles are the same. The concepts of what you're doing is the same, right? Like you want to sell as much as you can at the highest possible price, keep your costs down low, keep your customers happy, right? It's really basic business stuff that gets kind of twisted and you, you, you turn it into, oh, no, this, this is tech marketplace or these tech entrepreneurs are different from, you know, these other entrepreneurs. And I, I'm not sure I buy that. So if there is such a thing called a tech entrepreneur that's different from a regular entrepreneur, then I'm not that. But at the same time, I don't believe that that's true either. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And, you know, that's just, it's an interesting perspective. I guess from my perspective, working in the tech industry, yes, I consider myself a techie just because I'm in the industry. I see what goes on. Obviously, have this podcast. I talk to people who are leveraging tech and using technology. But it's interesting because I like that you bring the perspective of we don't even have to be segmented in these different areas. We're all just we're trying to make it. We're all trying to be entrepreneurs. We're all trying to be successful at our jobs. So I guess a title doesn't have to necessarily define what we are. Right. I mean, listen, wherever, what in, any industry that you're in right now has a heavy tech aspect to it, right? Like, so you can't yes. just ignore it, right? It's always going to be there. I, I do, I agree. I, I do agree though that there are certain people that are more kind of plugged into the world like you are, right? Like, you know, all these people and you, you're kind of in there on the nitty gritty. And I kind of, I'm in on it in the sense that I talk to a bunch of people, you know, I'm here, I'm around, um, I hear things, but I'm not really into it like that, right? Like the most, the majority of the time that I spend, if I'm thinking about it, are looking more towards consumer trends that maybe aren't even reported in the traditional places. Um, then I am looking at kind of, oh, this is what's hot, or this is what people are using to raise money, or this is what this is a new hot industry because that stuff just changes over and over again. And I think for me, it's just, it's more noise that I don't need. Right. Right. And so my final question for you, so you've dropped a lot of tips, a lot of advice, you've gone through your whole journey. And one thing that stuck out to me was when we were talking about Silicon Valley and how we can kind of, um, eliminate the diversity issue and you spoke about you know one thing that would kind of be helpful if, if there was a black business that was in the tech industry and they took over and was making billions in addressing the um, diversity issue right right so my question to you is why don't you create that business or is that what you're working uh, on i mean listen i think that is I will say this, that there's a bunch of different things that I'm working on in the future, um, in the relatively near future, and any business that I touch would be doing just that. I mean, and I, I guess I'll tell you this, right? Like, you get to, as in your journey as kind of your entrepreneurial journey, your journey as a human being, your journey as a black person, your journey as a black man, your journey as a black father um, or black parent. At some point, you just realize that you want to leave something, you want to do something that's going to make a change in the arena that you can actually make a change in, right? Like a lot of times people be like, oh, you know, you can do this, right? Like do a post, whatever, right? Like we can do that, right? But there's a certain skill set that I've been blessed with 
and using that, like, like, you know, going back to what we were saying before, right? Like playing in the arena where you can win, right? Like if I'm going to help black folks, why not do it in the arena where I could actually win, right? Like not just an arena where I could just talk, arena where I could win, arena where I could actually make a difference. And so that's what's really been kind of going through my mind for the past couple of years as my kids get older, as I have an African-American woman, an African-American daughter, um, knowing the plight of African-American women in the tech field, and to have two African-American sons, recognizing the plight that African-American men have um, throughout the world, you really start to say, what can I do? And I'm not just talking about, you know, when trying to give them the best possible future, both, you know, spiritually and um, parentally and monetarily, all of that I'm, I'm trying to do also, but what can I do for not just them, but for other people that look like them? And that's kind of what's been driving the idea of saying, you know what, and, and, and knowing this, right? Like, as I tell you this, as I say something like, you know, it can be done, um, and, and which is your question is right. Like, okay, well, if it can be done, there are plenty of people that can do it, but people, a lot of African-American entrepreneurs can't raise money. You know, you've been doing this for, you know, the last 16 years. You can raise money for it. Why can't you do it, right? A lot of African-American entrepreneurs don't have, you know, um, success running a ton of businesses or, you know, have had multiple successes. You have. Most entrepreneurs have never run a business before. You have, right? So there's all these ideas that just kind of suck to you and you're just like, why? You start to, to wonder, am I being selfish? not doing it right like is it just being too comfortable to just kind of sit here and kind of do media take out and continue on this path and you know make you know continue to grow and continue to have the decide be successful am i being am i being too selfish in just doing that and right now why i'm still in my prime and i actually do have all the opportunities in the world why can't i go out and do it and I can tell you that's just, that's something that's been on my mind and it's been weighing on me for a while. And when I'm ready to make the move, you'll be the first person to know. Fred, that's awesome. And I thank you so much for being on the episode today. And I hope you enjoyed sharing your tips and advice and these wonderful moments with my listeners. I do. I, I think it was a great time. And I hope that the people who are listening to us um, really get as much of it out of it tonight as I've tried to put into it. So before you go, where can my listeners follow you? How can you connect? You can, if anyone is out there and they really have um, a question, um, just email me directly. Email me at fredatmediatakeout.com um, and I might get back to you if I, if I have the opportunity to. Um, if not, maybe I'll give you my Twitter account and maybe, maybe we can keep in touch that way. Um, but I really hope that most people, you know, whether whether or not, we talk, we have any direct contact together. I think you should kind of listen to a lot of the stuff that I said because everything that I'm saying, it took me a long time to learn. And I'll tell you another thing, nobody told me it. Nobody told me any of this stuff. Any of the stuff I'm telling you, a lot of times you're going to hear it and you might be like, wow, this is the first time I've ever heard this. And a lot of people know this stuff and they just don't tell you, right? Like they just kind of, they, they, they tell you the same nonsense over and over again. Oh, just, you know, just keep, pushing ahead and 
things will change and things will get different and stuff like that. And that's good advice, right? But I think a lot a lot of us we know that already, right? That's kind of um we've got us into entrepreneurship and I think you need a little bit more practical kind of advice, kind of something that you don't always hear. And that's what I'm trying to give to the people on, out here right now. Hopefully you think about a lot of this stuff. If you disagree with it, that's fine too. But really in the end, I think that there are plenty of people that are sitting in their jobs and they're unhappy and they don't need to be. They're unfulfilled. They don't need to be. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be entrepreneurs. They need to take control of their economic uh, and career enhancement uh, and do something about it. And I think that there are plenty of things that you can do. Um, they're going to cost for a lot. Of, you're going to have to sacrifice for them, but there's a lot of stuff you can do. What a powerful way to end the episode. So thank you for your time today, Fred. Thank you. I had a great time.